This morning's scripture reading comes from Jeremiah 29, verses 1 through 9, and is found on page 656 of your Bible. These are the words of the letter that Jeremiah the prophet sent from Jerusalem to the surviving elders of the exiles and to the priests, the prophets, and all the people whom Nebuchadnezzar had taken into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. This was after Jeconiah and the queen mother, the eunuchs, the officials of Judea and Jerusalem, the craftsmen and the metalworkers had departed from Jerusalem. The letter was sent by hand to Elasa, the son of Shaphan, and Gemariah, the son of Hilika, whom Zedekiah, king of Judah, sent to Babylon to Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon. It said, Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon, build houses and live in them, plant gardens and eat their produce, take wives and have sons and daughters, take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage that they may bear sons and daughters, multiply there and do not decrease, but seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf. For in its welfare, you will find your welfare. For thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, do not let your prophets and your diviners who are among you deceive you, and do not listen to the dreams that they dream, for it is a lie that they are prophesying to you in my name. I did not send them, declares the Lord. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning and welcome to the Brookside Campus of Christ Community. We're really glad that you're here this morning. And especially if you are newer uh, either to Christ Community or maybe you're just even newer to to church, uh, we're really glad that you're here and hope that this morning you felt uh, welcomed here in this place and that you are enjoying the time that you've had with us so far. Uh, We truly desire to be a community that is able to, to welcome in and, and think through difficult questions about faith. This is certainly a place where skeptics are welcome. And so we're glad uh, that you're here this morning. And um, as we prepare to look at this passage that Anna Lynn read for us, um, we always respond to that reading of Scripture with thanks be to God, because we do believe uh, that this Scripture is a gift from God. So um, I want to just pause and pray and thank Him for the gift of His Word and then ask Uh, for him to help us to have ears to hear it. So Father in heaven, we do thank you for the gift of your word this morning. We give you thanks and we ask now that you would give us ears to hear uh, what you are saying to us through it. We pray this in Jesus' name, by the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen. One of my favorite things about traveling is the, that it reminds me of those things that I love about home. And I know many of you uh, travel uh, for your work, um, but even if you're just traveling for vacation or to visit family, I think we've all had that experience of when you're away from home, even if it's just for a weekend, of, of re- being reminded of those comforts and familiarity of home that we, that we love And this experience has certainly been true for me when I'm traveling domestically within the U.S., whether it's attending a conference or traveling on vacation. Uh, But that experience is heightened all the more when I've traveled internationally. 
Uh, you know, because there is something novel about immersing yourself in another culture, the different sights and smells, the new foods, the, the hum of a new language that you don't understand. But that sense of novelty and excitement can quickly turn to loneliness or even to fear. I remember uh, when we were traveling in England, our, our daughter Lucy was about a year and a half old, and one night we were staying in Oxford, and she was pretty sick. She had a really high fever. And I remember this moment kind of, of feeling helpless in the, in the hotel of, it's like I can't get a hold of our pediatrician in the U.S. because it's the middle of the night there, and I don't know who to call here in this country. I don't know where to find the doctor or how to get there. We didn't have a car. Um, and, and she ended up being fine, and we found a clinic. But just that whole process, even in a country as similar to the U.S. as, as England is, of, of not knowing who to call or how the system worked or how to get there, led to that sense of, of disorientation and fear. And God's people were facing a lifetime of that potentially lonely, disoriented, fearful existence as they were deported from their homeland and taken into exile in Babylon. Author Eugene Peterson uh, writes that the essential meaning of exile is that we are where we don't want to be. We are separated from home. He continues, the place of exile may boast a higher standard of living. It may be more pleasant. That doesn't matter. It isn't home. And the book of Jeremiah, which we've been looking at now for a number of weeks, tells the sad story of how God's people again and again have rejected him, have turned away from him, until finally they are now being sent into exile. The Babylonian army, which was to the north of Israel, has now come. It's conquered Jerusalem. And when the Babylonians conquered a city or a nation or a people, they didn't just want to rule over them. They weren't content just to, to be in charge. They didn't want to just subjugate the people. They wanted to assimilate them, actually make them Babylonians. So rather than just con conquer a country or a region and then set up a strong military presence there to sort of keep them in line, the Babylonians said, we're actually going to make these people part of us so that they won't rebel against us. And so they would depart or deport large numbers of that people's leaders, their elites, and bring them into the homeland of Babylon to make them Babylonians. And the question that's at the heart of this passage this morning is, so how should God's people live when they're in exile? How should God's people live when they're in exile, when they're away from home? And in this passage, there are two very different perspectives given on how to do that. And one of them is deeply flawed. One of them is deeply flawed. And all throughout this series in Jeremiah, we've been looking at this idea that life is a task too big for us. That this life that God has called us to live is too much for us to do on our own. It's a task that's too big for us. And a life lived in exile away from home is certainly too much for us. And yet it is this very life, this life away from home, that each of us is called to live. You see, in the New Testament, the second part of the Bible, the church, the local church, Christians are regularly spoken about with this language of exiles. It's a way to describe God's people in the world, even in the New Testament. 
of exiles. And indeed, at one level, the Bible describes the whole of humanity as being exiles. See, we were created for the Garden of Eden, this place that is our true home, the place where everything worked as it ought, where we enjoyed life with God and with one another without conflict or friction or deceit or hatred. However, we are now all living in the upside down, for those of you who are fans of Stranger Things. We're we're trapped in the upside down, outside of our home. We are living in a world that is not as it ought to be, in a place that so often feels anything like home. So how do we live in the upside down? How do we live out a life in exile, a task that is too big for us on our own? Especially when we realize that God's call is not for us just to survive in exile, but what we're going to see so clearly in this passage in a moment is that God has called us not just to survive, but to truly thrive in exile. That's Jeremiah's call, not just to survive, not just to get by in exile, but to thrive there. So how do we do that? How do we not just survive in a place that isn't home, but actually thrive there? We're going to see sort of three practices that are essential to that. First, you have to face the brutal facts of where you're at, the place that isn't home. Second, you have to make that place home. And then third, radiate hope. So face the brutal facts, make it home, and radiate hope. So first, if you're going to not only survive, but truly thrive in exile, you have to go in with eyes wide open about what your situation actually is. You have to face the brutal facts. But this isn't easy to do. Uh, I think it's much easier, I know it is for me, to take the posture of ignoring or minimizing the difficulties that we're facing. And you see, back in Jeremiah chapter 25, a few chapters earlier, God spoke through Jeremiah telling the Israelites that they would spend 70 years in captivity, in exile in Babylon. 70 years. Listen to these verses from Jeremiah 25. And Jeremiah is speaking here, and he's talking about how long he's been giving this message. He says, For 23 years, from the 13th year of Josiah, son of Ammon, king of Judah, to this day, for the past 23 years, the word of the Lord has come to me, and I have spoken it persistently to you, God's people, but you have not listened. Therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, this whole land shall become a ruin and a waste. And these nations shall serve the king of Babylon 70 years. Now, 70 years is a long time. I think sometimes you read a number like that in the Bible, which covers so much history, and you're like, oh, 70 years. But 70 years is a really long time. So think about that. 70 years ago, it was 1947. World War II is just it just ended. Harry Truman's still president. That's a long time ago. Senator McCarthy was fanning into flames the fears of communist infiltration. It's a long time ago, 70 years. But maybe don't even just think about 70 years in the past, but what about 70 years in the future from now, 2087? If I happen to still be alive, which is unlikely, but I'd be 105 years old then. Our daughters would be in their 70s. Lucy would be approaching her mid-70s at that point. 
Most of us sitting here probably won't be alive 70 years from now. Now, what did that mean for the Israelites? Well, for them, it meant that most of them, and probably their lifespans weren't quite as long at this period in history, probably most of them and probably most of their kids that they would have wouldn't ever see home again. The rest of their lives, the rest of their kids' lives, maybe their grandkids' lives, would be spent in Babylon, away from home, in exile. That was the brutal fact that they had to face 70 years. But there was another voice, an enticing voice, that said, no, no, it's not not 70 years. It's only going to be two years We hear this voice in Jeremiah 28. It belongs to another so-called prophet named Hananiah who's claiming to speak for God. And this is what Hananiah says in chapter 28. So he's claiming to speak for God. And he says, Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, I have broken the yoke of the king of Babylon. Within two years I will bring back to this place all the vessels of the Lord's house, which Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, took away from this place and carried to Babylon. I will also bring back to this place Jeconiah, son of Jehoiakim, king of Judah. The same king. He's going to bring him back and put him on the throne. And all the exiles from Judah who went to Babylon are going to come back home, declares the Lord. For I will break the yoke of the king of Babylon. Two years. Then you're going to be back home. That sort of uh, optimism, positive message, uh, I'm sure... um, you know, earned uh, Hananiah a, a bestseller and probably a national speaking tour as a message that people wanted to hear, right? That only two years and we'll, we'll be back home. But it was a lie. And Jeremiah knows it. And he knows that it's a lie that will crush God's people. It will undermine everything that God was trying to do in and through them. And so Jeremiah the prophet said, to Hananiah. Listen, Hananiah, the Lord has not sent you, and you have made this people trust a lie. And this possibility, it exists for all of us, that we would trust a lie, that we would believe a lie instead of facing the brutal facts. What brutal facts are you hesitant to face? I'm sure we would all love to believe that the, the Dow is going to continue just to keep going up and up and up, right? But we, we know if we face the brutal facts, there's probably going to be seasons where it's going to tick down, right? We often live life as though we, we don't believe at a functional level that we will actually face our own death one day. But we will. It's a brutal fact of our reality. Every one of us will face death. Another fact I think sometimes that we're hesitant to embrace, to face, is I think that sometimes we say to ourselves, think to ourselves, is that we are just somehow hip enough or relevant enough or Midwestern nice enough that people will find, that people rather, that they won't find our faith in Jesus or the sort of life that that faith produces to be odd or different or perhaps even at times offensive. But a life lived in faithful obedience to Jesus, over time it will make you different. It will make you stand out. 
Are we facing that fact? If you're a parent or a grandparent, if you, an aunt and uncle, if you are babysitting a nanny, if you are working with kids in your life, are you facing those, helping those children face that fact? Helping to raise them in a way that, that recognizes that a faith in Jesus will make them different? Or are we just trying to help them fit in? What if fitting in and being liked actually aren't the highest goals? If you want to thrive in exile, you can't have illusions about the realities in which you live. So we have to face the brutal facts. That's why Jeremiah writes this letter in chapter 29. Chapter 29 is the letter from Jeremiah to these people who are in exile in Babylon who are believing this lie that we're going to be back home in two years. Jeremiah says, no, it's going to be 70, like I said. And in here is a letter explaining how do you live? How do you spend 70 years in Babylon? What does life look like when it's going to, you're going to be there longer than, than you're going to live and then your kids are going to live? What does that look like? Now, you, you might expect Jeremiah to say something in this letter like, keep yourselves separate, Israelites. Don't put down roots. Don't get too attached. And make sure that you are a resistance force. That you're trying to sabotage the Babylonians. That you're trying to infiltrate the government and bring it down from the inside out. Doesn't seem unreasonable. It's what you might expect him to write. But instead, Jeremiah says, make this place, make Babylon your home. Make this place your home. Look at verse 4. In chapter 29, thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon, build houses and live in them, plant gardens and eat their produce, take wives and have sons and daughters, give your your sons and daughters in marriage that they may bear sons and daughters, multiply there and do not decrease. But seek the welfare of the city. I have sent you into exile. And pray to the Lord in its behalf. For in its welfare, you will find your welfare. Make this place your home, he says. Basically what he's saying to the people who are in captivity in Babylon in exile, he says, apply for a home loan at the first bank of Babylon and then go buy a house in Babylonian gardens. Join the Babylonian YMCA. Get, start collecting those punch cards at the Babylonian bistro because you're going to be here a long time. Make this place your home. He tells them to plant gardens and eat their produce. They're, you know, in, a, in an agricultural kind of society, he's saying be a vital part of the economic system in Babylon. Don't hold off on getting married or having children. Don't say, oh, we're going to be back home. I'm not going to get married. I'm not going to start a family here. We're going to be home soon. No, he says, you're going to be here a long time. Start families, having kids. Make sure the, the birthing center at Babylonian General Hospital is always busy. He tells them to seek the welfare of the city. Not just that they will have a good place to live, but so Babylon itself may flourish. Uh, The word that's translated welfare there in the English Standard Version is the Hebrew word shalom. Maybe you've heard that word before, shalom. 
It's not just an absence of conflict. It's, it's a sense of, of comprehensive peace, of, of flourishing and well-being and all systems and relationships and interactions where justice and mercy and love prevail in every relationship and institution and government organization. That's what God's people are to seek for their enemies who have brutally destroyed their city and taken them away from their homeland. They're to pursue that kind of thriving, flourishing, welfare, shalom for those very people who have brought them into captivity. Indeed, God says the only way that they will find their own shalom, their own well-being, is by seeking the shalom of their enemies. You see, our goal in living in Kansas City of making our home here, of being a local church here, is that we would make Kansas City a bit more like the city of God. See, our goal, as economist Brian Fickert once put, us when he put it when he was here with us at a, at a conference here at Christ Community, he said that the goal isn't to make New Delhi more like New York or Kampala more like Kansas City. The goal is to make all of those cities more like the true city of God, the new Jerusalem that we see at the end of the Bible, the perfected city. So how do we make this place our home? Let me offer three suggestions here. First, if we want to make this place our home, we have to know it, Uh, to know your city's culture, to know its, its points of pain, to celebrate its victories. To know your neighbors across the street as well as across town. You know, and in many ways, Kansas City is a city of lines, isn't it? That we, we talk about it as a city of east and west of Troost, or Kansas and Missouri, or north of the river or south of the river. There's these lines that divide our city up into different sections. But as a church, we want to care about the whole of Kansas City, east and west of Troost, Kansas and Missouri, north and south of the river. One of the amazing things about being in a multi-site church is that we have campuses in both states across the metro area. We want to love this whole city. If we're going to do that, we need to know its culture and care about it. So we need to know our city. Uh, Second, if we want to make this place our home, we have to own our city's problems. To the flourishing of of a culture and to care about it, to know it, we have to, to care about its problems. And if you want to know if a city or a culture is flourishing, you have to look not, not at the people who are, um, you know, sort of in, in middle class, or you have to look at who are the most vulnerable people in society. Go to look at them, and are they flourishing? What systems and structures and relationships are set up so that those people can flourish? The flourishing of a culture or city is only found when the most vulnerable flourish. This means that we're looking at, at those who are, are handicapped, the unborn who are vulnerable, This means those who are materially poor, those who are spiritually poor. It means addressing the the brokenness of individuals, yes, as well as owning and seeking to address the brokenness of systems and institutions, even if we weren't directly involved in creating the brokenness in those systems and institutions. 
And third, we make this place our home by investing in its future. So do you have a vision of Kansas City for the future? Have you thought about what would Kansas City look like? Or maybe if that's too big, what what would my block, my street, my apartment complex, what would that look like five years from now? Do you have an idea of what 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 you hope it would be like in five years? What about in 20 years or 50? What about 70 years from now? Whether you just moved here to Kansas City or you grew up here, if you are a Christian, if you have said that my only hope in life and in death is that I belong to God, that Jesus is my only hope, that if you're, if you're a Christian, then, then you should care about what Kansas City looks like both now and far into the future. And maybe you're not sure this morning how long you will be in Kansas City. Or or maybe you feel like you've got a pretty uh, sure expiration date on your time here in this city. That you're only going to be here while you finish college. Or you know that this job assignment only has you here for the next year and a half. Or or when your medical residency is done. Or once you finish graduate school and then you're, you're moving back home or you have a job lined up. But but this passage calls us to live in the city with all that we have as if we would be here for the remainder of our lives. I think one of the big challenges for us in our culture is that sense of transiency. We tend to be a people who who move a lot for education, for jobs, and the the mentality that we can get into is, well, I I don't think I'm going to be here that long, so I'm not going to put down roots. I'm going to hold back a little bit, but don't hold back. Think creatively about how you can make your little apartment complex or your cul-de-sac or your office in some small ways reflect the flourishing of true shalom, of comprehensive peace and well-being, not only for tomorrow but for years into the future. See, doing good and fruitful work, whatever that may be for you, whether you are auditing financial statements or teaching preschoolers or raising kids, coaching sports, counseling those whose marriages are in crisis, You see, your vocation, doing good and fruitful work, as acts of worship to God, contribute to the flourishing, the shalom of the whole city. So if you want to see your city flourish, be faithful in your work. It's one of the best things you can do for Kansas City, to love your city, is to do your work well. Be sacrificially generous with your time and your attention with your money and your influence, with your abilities and your talents. Begin to think about the whole city like you think about your home or your apartment or if you're a kid, maybe your room. You have this little space that you have some measure of control over. You have that space and and you you love it. You care for it. When, When the faucet's broken, you fix it. When a room lacks warmth and comfort, you decorate it. When... It's dirty, you clean it, you pick up the trash, you mow the lawn, you make it a place of hospitality and compassion. What would happen if we began to think of our our whole city, even the neighborhoods we don't live in, the parts that we want to see that kind of attitude toward the city and all of us? 
And Kansas City is a great city. Uh, and I think people who live here genuinely love it. Rachel and I have a card. It's one of our favorite cards. We actually framed it on the wall. We found it at a little shop. And it just says on the front that I love you like Kansas Cityans love Kansas City. I love you like Kansas Cityans love Kansas City. Because people in Kansas City, especially recently with the Royals, and all, people love this place. There's an affection, a, a warmth for this city. Enough that someone can make a greeting card that says, I love you so much. I love you like people love Kansas City who live here. But we can't be just content to merely enjoy the city for what it has to offer. For barbecue and baseball, jazz, football. We must take the next step to truly love the city as Jesus has loved us. Kansas City, it's a great place to love. For many, it's a great place to live. We want to do more than just take from the city. Pastor Tim Keller, who has done probably the very best work, at least in our time, of thinking about the relationship between the city and the local church, points out that there are three wrong ways that we can view the city. He says we can romanticize the city. Um, we can kind of despise or uh, distance ourselves from the city. Or we can be indifferent to the city. And when we romanticize the city, we just want to see the good parts of it. We just kind of want it for the, what it has to offer us. So the, the nice restaurants, the nightlife, the culture, the sports, the good neighborhoods. We kind of romanticize what it is to live in the city. But we don't want to see the brokenness. We don't want to own the brokenness. When we disdain or despise the city, we sort of come at the city with a mentality of, yeah, this is just a place of brokenness and corruption and evil. And I just kind of want to... If I have to live here, I'll tolerate it, or I want to get away from here. And as I think about people who call the Brookside campus home, their church home, I, I don't think many of us are disdainful of the city. I think we've chosen to live in the neighborhoods that are nearby this campus and live in the city because we, we like it. I don't think many of us are disdainful. Um, I think some of us may have a tendency towards romanticizing the city, but I think for most of us, at least I know this is true for me, we tend to slide is simply being indifferent to the city. That we just don't care that much about what happens in the city beyond kind of what immediately affects us in our day-to-day -day lives. That there's a certain level of indifference to the city, especially the whole of the, the entire metro region. But again, this passage calls us to care about our city, not just for two years, but for 70 years, for the whole of it, if you want to thrive in exile, you have to face the brutal facts about the reality in which you're living, and you have to make this place your home. And finally, you also have to radiate hope. Radiate hope. Look at verses 10 through 13 in chapter 29. Jeremiah continues, in this letter, he says, For thus says the Lord, When the seventy years are completed for Babylon, I will visit you, and I will fulfill to you my promise, and bring you back to this place. I'll bring you back to your homeland. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. Then you will call on me and come to me and pray and I will seek you 
pray to me and I will hear you and you will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. These are probably some of the most well-known verses in all of the book of Jeremiah. They are often, though, taken out of context. And you, you see them kind of in a, a flowery script on a, a graduation card or an inspirational calendar. And you know, it's okay. Those are God's words. It's good to, to meditate on thinking those. But we don't often think about those words in the context of the people that they were written to, which is they were written to people who have brutally witnessed their city be destroyed, have been taken away from their homeland, and been told you will spend the rest of your life away from your home, living among your enemies, you won't ever see home again. Your children probably won't ever see home again. You'll spend the remainder of your lives in a foreign land. These verses are meant to be an anchor for us in exile. To give us assurance that it won't last forever, even if it does last a lifetime. It won't last forever, even if it does last a lifetime. Because again, the people who are initially reading this letter, they're not ever seeing home again. Their kids probably aren't either. Maybe their grandchildren will see home again. Exile for them may last a lifetime, but it won't last forever. They remind us, these verses, that God is faithful to his promise. That he will always draw himself back to us. That he's doing things bigger. That sometimes it's going to take longer than our lifetime for him to work out his plan. And that produces a radiant hope. It produces a sort of hope that makes people ask. See, as Christians living in exile, we should radiate a question-prompting hope. A question-prompting hope. What do I mean by that? One of Jesus' closest followers, uh, he's known as the Apostle Peter. The word apostle means sent one. It's a, kind of a term for Jesus' 12 closest followers. The Apostle Peter writes a letter. He writes a couple letters in the New Testament. His first letter we know is First Peter. And he opens the letter this way. Many of the women in our, our congregation have been in a Bible study in First Peter lately. As you may be familiar with these verses. First Peter chapter 1 begins this way. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ to those who are elect exiles. Peter addresses Christians in his time as exiles. And in chapter 3 of his letter, he notes that Christians should have a contagious sort of hope that causes people to ask. That in particular, the way that Christians react and relate to suffering should cause people to ask about their hope. This is 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 15. He writes, Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give a reason for the hope that you have. Peter says that we should be able to explain the reason for the hope that we have to anyone who asks, which implies that we should have a sort of hope that's worth asking about, that prompts questions, that people should wonder, what is it about this person that gives them this, this such radiant hope? I, I need to ask, where, in the light of all these brutal facts around you, why are you so hopeful? 
And this sort of hope isn't uh, a naive wishing or sort of a Pollyanna-ish kind of everything will be all right in the end no matter what attitude. No, the biblical hope, the kind of hope that Jeremiah speaks about, the kind of hope that Peter talks about is a confidence, a sure thing. It's a longing for what will be and having the assurance that what God has promised will come to pass. And we can have that kind of hope because Jesus faced the most brutal fact of all reality. The fact of death and sin. He confronted, personified, personal evil on the cross and defeated the evil one and wiped out sin. The most brutal facts of reality, Jesus has dealt with them. And in doing that, Jesus came and he made this place his home. He came and made his home with us in John chapter 1, which we'll be looking at during Advent coming up here soon. John literally says that Jesus made his tent with us. He camped with us. He made his home here. And he lived among us and he promises to return and make all things new. And for that reason, we can radiate a hope that makes people ask it makes people long for the hope that we have. Let's pray. Father in heaven, I pray that you would make us that kind of people who radiate such hope as we care for this city, as we make it our home, that they would want to know, that people would, would miss this church if it disappeared because of how much it it does for and cares and loves and serves and has become such a part of the fabric of the community. Would we know our city? Would we love it? Would we own its problems? Would we have a vision for its future and invest in that vision? We thank you that Jesus on the cross has faced the most brutal facts of all reality and has given us a reason for unending, unshakable hope. It's in his name that we pray, amen.